Hello and welcome to Strange Stories UK. My attempt at a podcast to broadcast two stories that I've come across and found interesting. The cases are based in the UK and will be bi-weekly. The spectrum is quite broad. I've attended court cases to give examples of true crime. I've researched cases in the archives of the Society for Psychological Research for cases that could have explanations. And have researched other cases which caused controversy at the time, which can now be examined with the benefit of hindsight. So, there's many topics that will be examined. I'm putting a page on Facebook called Strange Stories UK, if anybody would like to comment on a case. Well, thank you, and I hope you enjoy today's story, a true crime story. Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, declared independence from the UK. Ferdinand Marcus was elected president of the Philippines. The death penalty was abolished in the UK. The Velvet Underground played their first gig. Bjork was born in Reykjavik, Iceland. David Browning was born during November 1965. He spent his life in Sussex. Although his parents went to Australia for an army posting, David stayed behind in Eastbourne while his two younger siblings accompanied their parents. <clears throat> there were subsidies for boarding school fees for the children of those in the army and David's parents were taking advantage of this scheme. David did not enjoy boarding school. He was small for his age and was bullied. David said he was sexually abused as teachers would spank bare bottoms for misdemeanours and would watch the boys whilst they showered. It seemed that David had internalised a deep resentment for being sent to boarding school while his brother and sister stayed with their parents. An attachment disorder buried in his psyche. Attachment disorder is said to be an aspect of emotional behaviour assessed along a spectrum. Later developments indicate that what he saw as being abandoned by his parents as a young child, it made him very aware and frightened of rejection. By his own admission, David was what he called a boring bloke's bloke, who was emotionally stunted and did not show his feelings. He tended to bottle things up and appeared unemotional, to the extent that his wife nicknamed him Spock, the fictional character who favours logic over emotion. David lived what he said was a boring, ordinary life. He was working in the same payroll office at the Brighton University for 28 years and was married to Deborah for 24 years. He had a mortgage on a house in Seaford, a Sussex seaside town, two children, a boy and a girl, and a family living nearby. His wife worked part-time in the same office as him. David was an amateur football coach. He watched his local team Brighton and belonged to Seaford Bonfire Society. Although he may have always lived in the same area and not had an exciting life, David came from a loving supportive family with two beautiful talented children and a devoted wife with extended family nearby. Seaford is surrounded by the Sussex Downs and close to Brighton and London. David had always worked and was financially comfortable with a house virtually paid off. 
David was deputy head of the payroll department and at times had been acting manager when two previous managers left for what David described as mental health issues. The work in the payroll and pensions department, open plan office, had been getting more and more complicated as different government rulings and pension changes had to be implemented. Those in the payroll team worked as a close-knit familiar team who had been together for many years. In late 2014 interviews were given for a new payroll manager. The applicants had to meet and talk to seven people in the payroll department who had a say in the appointment process. The new manager, it was decided, was to be 43-year-old Gillian Howell, who would start work in January 2015. Gillian was not to have an easy time. There was an eight-month backlog of managerial tasks that had been left unattended as the previous manager was off work ill, and the payroll team that was stuck in their ways, resistant to change and difficult to manage. Jill confided to a friend that two males in particular were being difficult and no one seemed interested in their work. Jill was professional and wanted to run an efficient department and early clashes with the established workforce were inevitable. Things that had seemed more laid back for the team when David Browning was the acting manager. David Browning said it was a carefree department and they had been together for a long time. During 2015, the relationship between the deputy manager and the new manager was beginning to deteriorate. David thought that Jill did not share things with him as the previous boss had. She was quiet and did not join in with the rest of the team. David thought Jill wanted a more professional approach for the department. The atmosphere got so bad that David success unsuccessfully applied for a job at another department within the university just before Christmas 2015. Elaine Rowe, one of seven employees at the payroll unit, said that if Browning and Miss Howells disagreed, there could be fireworks and Jill would shout and be rude to David in front of the whole finance department. This would happen every week or so. David asked for a meeting to clear the air with Jill during February 2016. They spoke for an hour. This improved the relationship between manager and deputy and seemed to clear up misunderstandings. David had told Jill, if you needed a sounding board or a dog to kick, then use me. During 2016, the atmosphere in the department improved. There were software problems, but the department pulled together to overcome these problems. But it was a high-pressure, intensive, stressful department to work in. During October 2016, there was a family tragedy for the Brownings. David's father, Ken, was pruning fruit trees in his garden when he fell from his ladder. The paramedics were called, but it took a long time to get his heart started. David arrived at his parents' house after being summoned by his mother and saw the confusion of his father prone with the medics trying to revive him. When Ken was in hospital, it became clear that his organs had started to fail and the decision was made to turn off the life support machine on the 1st of November 2016. Ken's death was a huge loss for David. He had great respect for his father, had always considered problems and came up with the, the right answer. David was also worried about his mother, as she had bowel cancer and Ken was her carer. 
David had two younger siblings, a brother Barry and a sister Jo, both living successful lives. But David now felt the pressure of being head of the family after his father's passing. It seemed that when David measured himself against his father, he felt lacking, not the respected man his father had been. David had been content, but after the death of his father, he'd started to analyse his life and concluded that he'd been living a boring life. David had been given two weeks' compassionate leave. David's wife Deborah, who we called Debs, was a creative, down-to-earth personality, but she had some health issues that caused anxiety and David did not want to bother her. Since his father's death, Debs had been aware of her husband wasn't his normal personality and she felt that they were not as close as they had been. On the 3rd of March 2017, there was an inquest into Ken's death. David said that he'd held himself together until the inquest, but now he started to unravel and started to have flashbacks of his father lying helpless in his garden. Other problems started to impact. A good friend's marriage ended, work was stressful, and to David it seemed that his life was unravelling. David was finding it difficult to cope with his problems. Jill Howard had been manager at the payroll department for two years now. She was a tall, strong, attractive, intelligent woman who had lots of friends and interests, amongst which was being counsellor for the Samaritans. She took shifts as a volunteer answering the phone to talk to desperate and suicidal people. Jill had lost her parents and being a caring and giving person, she was sympathetic to David when she learnt of his problems. During March 2017, David started to confide to Jill about his problems. David was finding it increasingly difficult to cope. He did not seek solace in drink or drugs, but was developing an increasingly emotional relationship with Jill, sending her flirtatious and borderline inappropriate text messages. However, at the same time, he was indicating to his family and friends that Jill was a bullying personality. David told Jill through text that he adored her. She looks stunning. I admire you so much. You are my rock, lovely lady. You are more than a boss. You are a friend. I would trust you with my life. And every Jill needs a Dave. It's argued here that David had an infatuation regarding Jill that was confusing him to try to counter his infatuation or to try to hide it. He pretended to others that he did not like her. David had met Jill for a drink on the 7th of June at the Sigleman pub in Brighton to discuss his problems. David had asked for the meeting in a text he wrote, Let's meet up for a beer. I'll pay. You can wear your Buckingham Palace dress, referring to a dress that Jill had worn to a Buckingham Palace garden party recently. Jill had always made it clear that she was only interested in helping him. Jill had told friends that a valued member of her team was going through a difficult time and she wanted to help him. Jill had told a friend and a colleague at the Samaritans about her concerns for David, that he is suicidal and struggling. In her reply to David's text, she never gave any encouragement to him, texting him that no flowers, wine or presents are required. A consultant psychiatrist later observed that David seemed to be coming besotted with Jill. On the 9th of June 2017, David texts Jill, saying that he hopes that he does not think she is, he is being pushy by wanting to meet with her, but he finds it very helpful talking to her. 
Later, another text said, You are more than just my boss, and I think you know that. Another text, Delighted to have my boss back, but having my friend back even more. And yet another text saying that he that she looked stunning, and that he had romantic feelings for her, which he tried to dismiss by saying, It's just me being cheeky. Another text said, I don't think you realise how much you mean to me as a friend, and that I will continue to be inappropriate at times. Later that month, Jill went on holiday with her friend, Sean MacDonald, and work colleagues noted that he took that David took great interest in looking up on social media what she was doing, and who was Sean MacDonald. During August 2017, Jill advised Human Resources that David was not in a good place since his father's death. Jill seemed anxious to help David to get treatment with therapy, the cost coming out of her departmental budget. David had told Jill that he was suicidal, but does not seem to have said that to anybody else. The 21st of August 2017, David was invited to Jill's house at Sandgate Road, Brighton. She wanted to help to cheer him up and help him break out of his depressive thoughts. It's thought that David had told Jill he was having suicidal thoughts again and it would help to talk to her again. Jill listened to David talk through his problems and tried to persuade him to talk to occupational health. Jill told her close friend Russell, who was a colleague at the Samaritans, David was controlling her by threatening suicide. Jill had spoken to Russell on other occasions about David and during August 2017 she told Russell that David had said to her she would never leave the university or get a boyfriend and she was, must concentrate on supporting him. Russell asked if this was a statement was a joke or in a fit of tears, but it was not. It was something he said in a very matter-of-fact fashion. He was serious about this. Jill suspected that David was obsessed and jealous, believing that he was in a relationship with her friend Sean MacDonald. Jill was disappointed with David's comments and, and attitude. Unbeknown to Jill, David had put a deposit on a shotgun. Having said that he'd become disillusioned with his football coaching to a friend, and his friend Paul had convinced him to try clay pigeon shooting. Later, David claimed he had bought the shotgun, seventy-five percent for the sport and twenty-five percent to kill himself. A consultant psychiatrist stated later that David was experiencing a midlife crisis after re-evaluating his life after the death of his father. He felt his life was boring, and he was perhaps. Imagining a future life with Jill, who was drawn emotionally very strongly to her. It appeared to him he could only relate to Jill. David Browning went on holiday to New York with his family in the September. His family later saying that he seemed distant. And when he returned, he bought his work colleagues small gifts. He bought Jill a bar of chocolate with a picture of President Trump on the wrapper. David had his first counselling session on the 10th of October 2017. There were initially to be three sessions with the Occupational Health Counsellor and the funding for this was to come from the payroll department's budget. David claimed to have a stigma about mental health, saying later that he thought that if he was diagnosed with a mental health issue, then his life would unravel. At the first session he told the female counsellor 
that he had suicidal thoughts. However, he was told that if that were true, then the counselling would have to stop. After this first session, David said that although his thoughts were in a mess, he first started having thoughts to murder Jill. In the next two weeks, there were two further appointments with the counsellor, who David said was good at extracting information. But after making him do eye exercises, he had left the third session with a migraine. The third session had been on the 21st of October 2017. The same day David had collected a hire van, which he later said he hired in order to kill himself with a shotgun that he had bought. The next Wednesday, the 25th of October 2017, David had arranged to meet Jill after work. David had gone into work early, about 7.30. Although appearing calm, there would seem to be a turmoil of emotion within David. At work, by himself, he wrote a number of letters to work colleagues, friends and family to explain the actions he was about to embark. These letters were referred to as the suicide letters later in court. David also fraudulently changed Jill's in-work pension request in the favour of one of her best friends, Sean MacDonald, who David erroneously suspected of being her lover. After work, David drove his Brighton student son home from the university and had a family meal, telling his wife Debs that he was going to see Jill. Debs thought they were going to meet in a public house. David took his recently acquired shotgun in case from the loft and a change of clothing, which implied to the prosecution that he was intending to stay the night, and he drove to collect the hire van. David also had an EKA hunting knife in his pocket. David stopped at Sainsbury's to buy wine and flowers and posted his suicide letters at a post box and made his way to Jill's house. Jill had made a goat curry and she wanted to discuss how the counselling sessions had progressed. We can't be sure of what happened in Jill's house that night as we only have David's explanation of events. The timeline of events, according to David, after he arrived at Jill's house at 730 was that they talked for about three hours. In David's own words, I can't remember the exact time, but I've been there about three hours. Jill looked at me and said, Do you want to think about going home now? I said, I can't go home. She said, Why? I said, Because I've posted my suicide notes on the way here. She was very shocked and said to me, Dave, I need to take you to hospital. I said, I think I need to go to the police station. She said, no, I need to take you to hospital. She got up and picked up one of her trainers. I was behind her. I felt this whoosh come over me. I pulled the knife out and stabbed her in the back. She fell forward against the sofa where I had been sitting. Then I stabbed her twice in the throat. I remember stabbing her six times. She grabbed the knife with her hand and screamed, You bastard! I said, I'm sorry, Jill. This is what mental health does to you. It's not you. Then she moved to the right and lay on her back. I remember stabbing her once in the chest and the neck, and then stabbing her once in the chest, another two times in the throat. I was thinking, what the hell's going on? What have you just done? Why have you just attacked someone that was helping you? I just felt shame, guilt. I was just in complete despair. 
Browning said he remembered scrawling the word bully across Miss Howe's forehead, but he could not explain his actions. According to his mobile phone tracking data, David stayed at Jill's house for the next few hours, during at which time he deleted swathes of messages and data on his phone and his website history. He described sitting in the chair in her lounge for one or two hours before deciding it was time to kill himself, going out to the van to get the shotgun and returning to the house. David changed his clothes, washed his hands and wrote a note to the police. And he wrote a message on the walls, up the stairs and spray paint. I'm in cahoots with Sean MacDonald. It's not known what else David did whilst he was alone in Jill's house, although blood was found in the bathroom upstairs. At some time in the morning, David put a poster on his Facebook account, showing a small figure ramming a spear through a larger figure, with much bloodshed, with the caption, Stand up to bullies and then kill them. David spent some time on the internet and searched advice on suicide with a shotgun, although he later said that he couldn't put his family through identifying his shot body. David searched also for the Samaritans. He phoned them and talked to a woman volunteer for an hour, telling her that he had done something really bad, that he'd stabbed his boss, who was bullying him. When asked if she was dead, David says he doesn't want to look, and he's considering shooting himself, as he's worried about his children not wanting to see him again. He claimed that he was not intending to kill her, but she said something, and he'd lost it. The woman volunteer later gave evidence that he seemed worried about the impact of his actions on him, rather than worrying about the woman he had just killed. After the phone call, David said that he'd spent 15 minutes deciding if he should shoot himself. Then he drove to Brighton Police Station. He waited outside after phoning them. He said he needed to be sectioned. He had wanted to kill himself, but killed somebody else instead. Police came out initially thinking that he had come to hand in a shotgun, as there was an amnesty at that time for weapons. But on hearing his story... They arrested David about six, ten minutes past six. Officers went to Jill's house and found her body in the lounge at about 6.30. This was the 26th of October, 2017. The police found a note addressed to them from David saying that there was a cat that needed looking after and that Jill's friend Sean MacDonald had been in cahoots with David. And when he received Jill's pension, the lump sum for death in service, David claimed that he arranged with Sean MacDonald that Sean would give David's children half the amount paid out. Sean MacDonald had talked to Jill about her problem at work and knew that she had problems with an unnamed, an unnamed male co-worker, but the first time he heard the name David Browning or learned of Jill's death was when the police knocked on his door on the 26th of October. The case came to Crown Court at Hove during April 2018. Court one is dull and depressing. There's no natural light, and the low hum of the lighting causes difficulty in hearing what the wit when the witnesses speak at low in a low voice. There's not a lot of available seating in the public gallery. Seats have been bagged by leaving items of clothing on them. There's much graffiti engraved into the woodwork. Zoe Smith was here. Crims don't die, they multiply. And similar offerings. David was being held at the prison in the Isle of Sheppey about 90 miles away and driving through rush hour traffic often caused the nine-day trial to be delayed. David appeared as a below-average height middle-aged male with a paunch 
a drawn face with glasses on top of his head, which he moved on to his eyes when he had to read. Dressed in an open-neck shirt with a dark suit jacket, when he was questioned directly about anything to do with his actions in the murder of Jill, his voice dropped so that he was constantly told by the judge, Christine Lang, and the barristers to speak up. He often gave short answers or said, I can't answer that, or I can't remember, I don't know, or I cannot explain my actions. However, when asked about general questions, David would speak in a normal voice and talk at length. David appeared well-spoken, but was not agile in his thought, and often took time to answer a question. David was in a difficult position, having made his place case quite clearly in his suicide letters. How was he to deny them now, other to claim diminished responsibility? However, when questioned in the witness box by the prosecution, he was caught out numerous times and replied, I do not understand what was happening. The defending barrister, Graham Tremath, had the difficult task of trying to persuade the jury that David Browning's depression had led him to kill Miss Howe while suffering a brain abnormality, and he was guilty only of manslaughter by diminished responsibility. The prosecution barrister, Mr Gardner, insisted that the murder was cold, calculated and planned in advance. The cold-blooded murder of a woman in her home by a man she trusted as a colleague and a friend and a man she was trying to help after the loss of his father. David Browning killed her out of anger rather than an uncontrollable urge caused by his depression. After hearing the events leading up to the murder, there was a list of agreed facts that were handed to the jury. What was being contested was the mental state of David Browning. There were two forensic psychiatrists that were to speak, one for the defence and one for the prosecution. For the defence, Dr Richard Noon assessed Browning, saying that he was so normal he made for a unique case. Browning's stability, his normality, his work history, his relationship history was all normal. However, his choice of victim is unusual, and the writing on the walls and on his victim is unusual. Noon said that he had a mental disorder, and it was severe during his interviews with Browning. It became clear he blamed Gillian Howe for referring him to a counselling, saying he had feared his life would be over if he was diagnosed with a mental health condition. This drove his de decision to kill her. He said that Browning had a love-hate relationship with Jill. He told the doctor he denied being sexually attracted to Miss Howe. However, the psychiatrist's assessment was he certainly had an abnormal attachment to her. In describing Browning's account to him, Dr Noon said, What he said to me was he knew he had to kill her when he went round for that, for that meal. Dr Noon said it was up to the jury to decide whether his depressive illness was severe enough to cause him to lose the ability to form a rational judgment. The forensic psychiatrist of the prosecution came across as a more convincing, in essence arguing that the findings suggested that David had distanced himself from his wife and friends, he wanted a closer relationship with Jill after becoming emotionally dependent on her, it seemed that David was trying to reinvent himself and deludedly saw a future with Jill, and when she made it clear that he was mistaken, she was murdered. Dr Joseph said that Browning's mental health was moderate but fluctuating. Dr Noon thought it was severe. In his closing argument to the Hove Crown Court, Mr Gardner pointing out that Browning had never given a proper explanation for why he killed Jill. It wasn't a case of who done it, 
but why did he do it? He thought that the violent outburst came after David Browning had found Jill didn't share his romantic feelings. <laughs> Mr Gardner said he plainly became attracted to her, but on the October the 26th last year, he had discovered that she didn't have the same feelings as him. She had rejected him, and Browning reacted with anger and violence. And that's the reality of the case. This was a crime driven by those feelings of anger, jealousy and betrayal. Miss Howe's attempts to lend a helping hand to her deputy to help him through his depression were almost immediately misconstrued by Browning. Miss Howe realised too late that Browning had become hopelessly and dangerously attracted to her. Mr Trembath, for the defence closing argument, said he wasn't going to take as long as his explanation was simple. Then he proceeded to take longer to talk longer than the prosecution. His main argument being that as nothing made sense, the killing was irrational, therefore Browning was suffering from diminished responsibility. It seems the defence was somewhat desperate, and Mr Tremmerth did try to ham things up, as his argument was so weak. May the 2nd, 2018. Judge Christine Lang gave, up her, gave her summing up, telling the jury that they had to decide whether David Browning's mental health issues had made it difficult for him to form a rational judgment or was he using his mental health as an excuse for killing Jill? The jury did not take long to reach their decision. There's a convention that the jury must deliberate for at least two hours when coming to a verdict. This jury took two hours and twenty minutes to find David Browning guilty of murder. A verdict greeted with a chorus of yes from most of the gallery. When sentencing David Browning, Judge Lang said, This was a sustained attack and the terror and trauma for her in the final few minutes of her life is unimaginable. Not content with inflicting these injuries, then you defiled her body by writing the word bully on her forehead. Lang said that it had been a grotesque act, and it could not have been further from the truth, with her compassion costing the 46-year-old her life. She said the highly successful woman may have been frustrated with a team resistant to change, but it was Browning who had perpetuated this myth of bullying in an attempt to evade full responsibility for his actions. Browning was a spurned admirer, who was deeply self-centred with a selfish and vindictive streak, the trial heard. <coughs> Lang said Browning's utterly callous actions caused trauma to her Howell family and his own. Lang said, I'm quite satisfied from the evidence that you were exaggerating how low you were feeling to maintain Gillian's attention. Browning, who perpetuated this myth of bullying in an attempt to evade the full responsibility for his actions. The sentence was 28 years. After the trial, the Browning family put out the following statement. We would like to offer our condolences to the family and friends of Gillian Howe. Depression is a de devastating mental illness, and David was desperately affected by the traumatic death of his father, causing him to react so dramatically and out of character. We love David, and as his family, we will always stand by him and support him. <laughs>